what I thought I would do today is kind of cover three things. And, and you all being law students, and, and I assume most of you interested in, in public interest law of one form or another, uh, but also interested in thinking about your futures. I, I thought that, for, and also thinking about this issue substantively, I, I thought I'd do three things. And, and the first is I'll just tell you a little bit of my story and my background. And I've had what's turned out to be kind of a varied public interest career. And, and so hopefully, hopefully hearing about that uh, might be instructive to you in some way. I'm going to talk about uh, juvenile justice reform in Virginia and, and what we're doing here as a way really to talk about larger juvenile justice and criminal justice reform issues. And then at the end of the talk, I thought I'd talk a little bit more specifically and, and try to jog my memory of, of what I had carefully crafted in the PowerPoint of, of what are the various issues in criminal justice reform and, and prison reform and what are the various roles that lawyers can play um, in terms of taking those issues on. And my goal is to be done talking by around 12.45 so we have time for questions. But if you have a burning question as, as we go along, uh, please don't be shy about raising your hand or, or speaking up. That's completely fine with me. So I graduated from law school in 1994. I went to Northwestern. And during my time in law school, I was very much interested in doing public interest work and, and very much in particular in working with kids. And so to me, as I was sort of scanning the horizon and trying to figure out what's the best way to enter that field, because there are not that many jobs specifically targeted uh, to do that work, it seemed like being a public defender was a great way to start. So during my second year summer, I interned at the King County Public Defender's Office in Seattle, which is for any of you thinking about public defense work is an amazing office and, and a great place to do work. Uh, and from that, I was lucky enough to be offered a job uh, you know, by December of my third year, which is kind of unique in that. Uh, world And so I was very grateful for that opportunity. And I went out to Seattle and was a public defender for three years, give or take, and, and loved that work. And towards the end of my time, I got to do some juvenile defense work, which I particularly loved. And they were starting a new project uh, that was really focused on sort of holistic legal representation of court-involved kids. And the way the tip public defender offices typically work is you rotate through divisions. You might start with adults and go to kids or kids and adults, misdemeanors, felonies. And while I was completely into that work and I loved it, and anyone who's thinking about it, I can't recommend it highly enough, uh, the idea of being able to stay and, and continue working with kids was very appealing. So. I got a job at a program that's called Team Child, and it was just starting off then. And for those of you who are familiar with child advocacy work, you're probably familiar with Team Child. And right as the day I was about to uh, start my job, which was in September, I think, of 96, I went to a wedding and met a girl who lived in Charlottesville, Virginia. And that was very bad timing. And, and so to, to uh, and, and, not long into our relationship, we decided, well, we have to give this a serious try. But she was living here, and I was living there. And so we were trying to figure out where to live. And she said, well, you know, guys like you, liberal, do good lawyers, you're probably a dime a dozen in Seattle. But you know, come to Virginia, because there's really nobody like you. 
and she, I think, has regretted that uh, statement. So, so that appealed to my public interest, you know, be the guy with the, on the white horse riding in to save the day. You know, she, she knew then and knows now what strings to pull to get me to do something. And so I moved here in 1997, and, and I literally did not know anybody except for my girlfriend. I had to take the bar. I didn't have a job. And now today I'm the director of the State Department of Juvenile Justice. And which, which, you know, learning lesson number one, which I hope you take away from that, is, is it's, it's nothing about me. It's, it's about wanting to do something. And, and if someone had said 20 years ago, or which basically it was 19 years ago, this is how it would all work out, I would have said, you're crazy. And, and a month into my time studying the, for the Virginia Bar, which was awful, you know, if someone said, this is how it's going to work out, you know, I would have said, you're crazy. I wasn't sure it was going to work out at all. And I'm sure some of you, as you think about your own futures and careers, have those thoughts sometimes. But, but part of the lesson here is persistence. And if you want to do something, do what you need to do to do it. So to make a long story short, I, I ended up meeting the head of the Legal Aid Justice Center not long after I got here. And I ended up getting a Soros Justice Fellowship to start what's now the Just Children Program, you know, which some of you may be familiar with. And, and I started that in 1998. And not long into that work, which was at a legal aid office, so I'd gone from public defense to legal aid, but still interested in comprehensively representing kids. And we started off very much as a direct representation kind of shop. Does everybody know what I mean when I say direct representation? One client, one issue, one case at a time. Uh, but it became clear as we went along that, that there was no children's law center, statewide children's law center in Virginia, you know, that was watchdogging the General Assembly, that was looking out at the work the state agencies were doing, that were trying to keep bad laws from passing or make sure that good laws did pass or bringing impact litigation as necessary. So we resolved that we were going to become that. And, uh, and, and I think it's fair to say that we did. Uh, you know, I think Just Children now has seven or eight lawyers and community organizers and offices in three different locations in Virginia. Uh, some of you, anyone here in the Child Advocacy Clinic? A few of you, so you're getting exposed to that work. Uh, so that ended up working out. And, and many of, you know, many graduates from this law school have gone on, it might be fully staffed almost by graduates from, from UVA Law and graduates from the Child Advocacy Clinic at, at this point. Uh, so, so we grew, we expanded, not only in the number of people we have, but in the scope of the work that we did and the impact of the work that we did. We worked on legislation. We, we did impact work. Uh, we trained people all over the state. We, we kind of raised the bar in a fairly large way on, uh, on effective representation of children and people being aware of the rights of kids and how to effectively protect them. So after a while, it just sort of seemed like it was time to move on. I'd been there for 12 years, and I had, we had started the Child Advocacy Clinic as adjunct faculty, and so I had the opportunity to come to the law school, uh, where I was from 2010 to 2014, doing the clinic primarily, but also doing some work in the Law and Public Interest Program, which had just started, I think, when I got here. And, and then two years ago, uh, I got tapped by the governor to become the director of the Department of Juvenile Justice for Virginia. 
And, and when I was talking with my wife about it, because uh, this is a big decision and has an impact on everyone in the family, and we have four kids, uh, she said, well, look, you know, if this is your dream job, then I will support you doing this work. And if not, you know, forget it. I was like, okay, and I thought about it for a while, and you know, think about how my career path started. I was a public defender. I was, you know, doing the proverbial stick it to the man kind of work, and you know, standing up for the little guy and fighting authority and all that. And now I was about to take a job where my photograph is on the door of the juvenile prison. You know, I spent my professional life trying to keep kids out of prison, and now I was going to be responsible for locking them up. Uh, but So that was sort of one level of looking at it. But on another level of looking at it, I had really been thinking my whole professional life about the rights of kids and about how to make systems work better. And, and so it was, a, it was a kind of put your money where your mouth is sort of moment. Like, okay, you think you're so smart, tough guy. Why don't you come be in charge of the agency and, and see how it goes? And so I finally came back to my wife and I said, I think it is my dream job. And so I got appointed in April of 2014, and, and now we're about two years in. And so while the work that I'm going to talk about in terms of our transformation is about sort of sitting in my chair as the director of an agency, it's certainly informed in large part by all the work I did representing kids who this agency is now responsible for. And you know, you can think of it or think about it through all those different lenses as, as we go along. So one of the other things that's happened during the sort of trajectory of my personal career is that the way that we talk about kids in the justice system has changed quite a bit. So when I started off as a lawyer in the mid-90s, has anyone you know, heard Hillary Clinton getting tagged for using the word super predator? You know, and she's getting a hard time for that. So that term was coined in the mid-90s. And it was coined by a professor at Princeton who, who talked about juvenile super predators, a guy named John Diulio, who has since sort of apologized for, for doing this. But at that time, which is when the crack epidemic was spiking, there was sort of two or three years when crime was really going through the roof, particularly in urban areas. And it was also at the same time there were some school shootings taking place. So that's when we started talking about zero tolerance. That's when we made it much easier to try children as adults and people used expressions like, well, you do the adult crime, you should do adult time and things like that. And, and we started locking up more and more kids. So that's when I started this work. And, and, and cut to 20 years later, it's a very different conversation. And, and people are recognizing all across the country that shorter sentences are often better than longer sentences, that children are different than adults, that we should keep kids in school because kicking them out of school just has caused the school to prison pipeline problem and issue. And so people are rethinking all those policies. So it's kind of it's an exciting moment for those of you who are into juvenile justice or criminal justice. And those kinds of conversations are also taking place sort of about the criminal justice system generally. And people of all political stripes are thinking different things about it. What's also interesting about the change in conversation is that it's happening on multiple levels. The Supreme Court 
particularly as, as it relates to kids, has issued a series of significant opinions where they keep reiterating the point that kids are different than adults. And when we think about punishment, we have to think very differently about what we do with kids. If you do public opinion, you know, read any public opinion poll on these issues, both nationally and the Virginia Commonwealth University released a poll during the session during the, this recent legislative session where people are, are overwhelmingly in support of taking kids out of prisons and having them served in their communities and keeping kids in school and not on the street and that sort of thing. And, and Republican legislatures, you know, red states, blue states, the red states sometimes because they've been sued by the Department of Juvenile Justice, I mean the Department of Justice, but everyone is sort of getting this message. It, it's not a north-south thing, it's not an east-west thing, it's not a red-blue thing. Everybody's talking about reform, and everyone has recognized that you know, treating kids like adults doesn't work so well. So it's kind of a nice context, both as for all of you thinking about your careers in this field, there's a lot of exciting work going on right now, and, and it's a nice context uh, to actually be doing the work which, uh, and the kind of work that we're doing in Virginia. So uh, cutting to us right now, uh, two minutes on the Virginia Department of Juvenile Justice just so the, the things I talk about make sense. So we are a state agency, and we run the front door to the back door of the juvenile justice system. We run all of the probation offices across the state, and we run two large juvenile correctional centers, uh, Beaumont Juvenile Correctional Center and Bonaire Juvenile Correctional Center. Any of you in the clinic been to either of these places? Yeah? How would you describe them? Yeah. Yeah, and and they feel a lot like adult facilities. You know, like if you if you if we blindfolded you and put you in an adult jail or put you in one of our facilities, you couldn't tell the difference if if you were in a cell block on either one. You could tell the difference by the size of the people or how much facial hair they had, but, but not based on the physical layout of the place. And, and these correctional centers were built years ago, and, and everyone had this idea that you know the training school, the reformatory center where you pack lots of kids under a roof and, and do whatever you do with them was a good way to go. And, and research and evidence has shown over time that it's not. Most of the country has abandoned these places. But in Virginia, because of budget cuts, which led us to cut all the, all the other programs and services that the state used to operate, uh, we've become increasingly reliant on them. So around the country, something like 10% of the kids who are locked up are locked up in facilities of 200 beds or larger. In Virginia, 85% of the kids who are locked up, are locked up in facilities of 200 beds or larger, which is all that we have. So as of this morning, uh, the good news is we, we only have 320 kids between those two facilities. And when I started as the director of the Department of Juvenile Justice, we had about 570 kids in, in those two facilities, which is, you know, some indication of what you can do as the director of an agency. If you were the lawyer trying to get 270 kids out of prison in two years, you would not be able to do that. Um, and not that I'm personally responsible for all of it, but you start setting policies and trajectories and rethinking what you do, and there can be tangible impact like that. 
So those kids are, are less than 10% of all the kids we supervise on any given day. So, so probation, parole, diversion, on any given day, there's like 4,500, 4,600 kids under some kind of juvenile justice supervision. Those two facilities, however, eat up about 40% of our budget. And 80% of the kids who are released from those facilities, at least historically, get rearrested within three years of getting released. So we're spending a disproportionate amount of money on a small amount of kids who don't do that well in terms of outcomes. Another way to look at the outcomes is, is we did this data sharing thing with the Department of Corrections, which runs the adult prisons. As of December 31st of last year, of all the kids the Department of Juvenile Justice had released in the 10 years prior, there were 1,500 kids, or about 24% of the kids we had released, were in the Department of Corrections, which is a lot of kids. And maybe you think 24, 25%, that's not so bad. So today, it costs about $150,000 a year to have a kid in one of our facilities. Let's say we average that over 10 years, and we'll call it $100,000 per kid. So those 1,500 kids cost us $150 million to rehabilitate, if you think of it cumulatively. And they are costing Virginia taxpayers on an annual basis another $45 million because we didn't get it right. So in addition to kids being different and us rethinking you know, what works and that sort of thing, like there's a huge fiscal impact to not doing criminal justice the right way. And, and you could tell similar stories in the adult system. I'm just talking about one state and the juvenile system. But you could imagine that you could do that analysis in a lot of different settings. And, and my guess is that, that you could show a lot of the same sorts of negative outcomes, which is one reason why people are paying so much attention to these issues now, because they cost a lot. And, and when you have bad outcomes and high costs, all of a sudden, legislators who might not naturally come to these issues take a different kind of interest. And so, so when I came in as the director, those were some of the facts on the ground. And, and, and you could say, well, I'll just sort of manage it and we'll take little bite-sized you know, dents at this problem. Or you could come in and say, well, let's really try to change it. You know, in Virginia, we have this funny system where we have single term governors. And so people in my position are typically not appointed for more than four years. Uh, so the clock is ticking. Uh, but but it seemed like it was a big enough problem that it was worth trying to sort of take a big swing at it. And so so what we've done is, is you know, we sort of put our reform in kind of three buckets. And, and the first bucket is trying to continue to reduce the population in those facilities, because evidence just says it doesn't work very well. And we did further research that showed that the longer kids were with us, the more likely it was they would reoffend, And that controlled for offense level and risk level, so that we weren't really getting much back for that investment. So, Part of our strategy is to safely reduce the population in those facilities. 
to make it easier to manage, to get better outcomes, all those sorts of things. And, and so we've done that a, a few different ways. One of the ways we've done that is, is we have this pretty unique authority, which is where we get to decide the release date for most of the kids in our custody. So unlike a, in the adult system where the judge says you get whatever you get and maybe you have parole review, maybe you don't, uh, most of the kids who come into our custody, the judge just sends them to us. They commit them to the Department of Juvenile Justice, and then it's up to us to decide how long we stay. So the length, our average length of stay when I became the director was 18 months, which was about twice the national average, three times sort of what research says works best. And so one of the things we've done is rejigger and and you know reanalyze and, and redesign our length of stay system. The other thing that we've done is the declining population that we've had in the facilities has allowed us to free up some money that we would otherwise put in those facilities and start creating more alternatives in the community. And there's a lot of research that says if you can keep kids local, even if it's in a secure setting for shorter periods of time where they can stay connected to their families, they can stay connected to the communities they're ultimately going to return to, you get much better outcomes. One of the things about our facilities right now is they are clustered around Richmond, Virginia. And for those of you who've driven around Virginia, you know it's a pretty big state. And, and those facilities in particular are quite a ways from the Hampton Roads area, which is where a lot of our kids come from. So kids come to our facilities, usually from challenging family situations, not always, but often. Their families, because of distance and economics and things like that, don't come to see them while they're with us, and then we send them back home. A year later or two years later, we hope something better happens. And as the data says, suggests, it, it, it usually doesn't. And so we're trying to create more community-based settings, uh, more alternatives for courts so they don't have to send kids to us. Another problem in the juvenile justice system is that some, and, and it's the same in the education system, it's the same in public housing, is some localities have a lot of resources and some don't. And so some judges, when kids come into court, have a lot of alternatives to sending them to a, a correctional facility, and some don't. So, so part of what we're trying to do is build capacity across the state so all judges have some opportunity to divert kids from the deep end of our system. So there's the reduced side of it. Then there's changing the way that we work with the kids once they're in the system. And, and that has been a huge endeavor and not easily done. So the, the problem is, you can picture, right? You have two facilities, you have lots of kids, they are damaged kids, some of them are very high risk kids, lots of them have mental health issues, behavioral health issues, educational challenges, trauma exposure, and they're there with you and you want to change the system, but it's not like you can send them home and retrain everybody for two months and then bring them back, right? That would cause some people to get very upset with, uh, with us. And so, so we've had to figure out a way to train people as we go, and we've created new sort of treatment approach to working with kids in the facilities and kind of on a unit-by-unit unit basis are training staff and bringing kids in and, and getting much better outcomes. One of the funny things about the way the Department of Juvenile Justice operated is all the staff in the facilities worked 12-hour shifts. And then when we were understaffed, which is 
often because no, it's hard work and people don't want to work there, they would work overtime. So they work 16-hour days. So do any of you have kids? Kids, raise your hands. So imagine like being in a closed room with no windows for 16 straight hours with your kid. Would you be patient at the end of that? Would you be in a, a mood to redirect people and help, you know, you'd be at the end of your rope and you would not be your best self. And, and this work is so hard, we want folks to be their best selves while they're there. And so, but you can't just automatically change everyone's work shift from 12 hours to eight hours. That's easier said than done. So for each new unit we roll out, they're moving to eight hour work shifts. And it's like, it's not something you'd ever think about if you were representing a kid or you were on the outside of the system, but it has a huge impact on what happens when they're in the system. We did surveys of the kids in our system, and it turned out that if they had an adult in the system they trusted, they were much more likely to be interested in education, interested in treatment, you know, thinking about their future. And the staff they were most likely to trust were the direct line correctional officer staff. But we had a policy in place a couple of years ago where they were told, don't engage with the kids. You know, basically like tell them to shut up, get in line, do their thing, but you're not part of the treatment team. And so on the one hand, you have this data that suggests they really should be part of the treatment team, but you have a system that says don't be part of the treatment team. So that's part of what we're doing too is we're redefining their roles and retraining them so they can be engaged, their job satisfaction, I'm knocking on wood because we're you know, still in the early stages, about seven months into converting units, but their job satisfaction is higher, the violence, aggression, all that on the, on the units is going down. Uh, so that seems like a, a pretty good work in progress. We're also trying to do much more to connect families with the kids in the system. There's a, a lot of research that suggests that that kids who have regular family engagement, contact, all that, are gonna end up doing better when they go home or they're gonna end up doing better when they're in their community. And, and, the, the, and so we are now paying for transportation so parents can come see their kids because it's sort of, why wouldn't we wanna do that if we could? And, and why wouldn't we wanna do that if we know it's gonna to lead to, to better outcomes? And so there's a lot of work there. There's a lot of work on parole and reentry. So, so reduce, reform, and then the last piece of this is uh, what we call replace. So I told you we have these two big facilities that suck up a lot of money, that are geographically isolated, and that don't give us great outcomes. And we have a continuing declining population. So we have 319 or 20 kids between the two facilities this morning. We have 560 beds between the two facilities. So it's a lot of money being flushed down the tubes to heat and cool and manage all that space. And so the governor, in this budget that he just proposed to the General Assembly, proposed giving us money to build two much smaller juvenile correctional centers to actually move, to replace our big ones, to move from a footprint of 550 beds to 150 beds. You know, one of them would be in the Hampton Roads area, so kids would have a place to be closer to home, and then the other would be in central Virginia because we get a lot of kids from the Richmond metro area. So he proposed doing that, but then he also proposed doing an interesting thing, which was, which we had asked him to do, but which was to give us the authority to reinvest money we save 
from either closing down facilities or closing down parts of our facilities. Because what happens typically in state government is when a state agency saves money, the legislature takes it back. And so you can't ever, and so we said, well, let's not ask for any new money, but let's just ask for the ability to move the money we have to more effective places. And so during this past session, which, which just ended a little while ago, there was a lot of agreement on that point. Bipartisan agreement and sort of, I mean, they appreciated that we weren't asking for more money, but I think they sort of saw it as a creative way to try to solve this problem. And different states have done this in different ways. They've created financial incentives for localities to keep kids local instead of sending them to state government. Because we're set up it's, it, as a state agency and we control everything, it's easier for us just to have the money. So, so with that money, we could create more of these local treatment programs and alternatives to big state custody. With that money, we could sort of ensure that we don't have justice by geography, that every region of the state has access to the same level of evidence-based programs and things that work. And in their final budget that they just sent to the governor, uh, the General Assembly approved that. They gave us planning money for a facility in Hampton Roads, um, which it wasn't everything we wanted, but that's sort of how this works. And, and it's, it's great progress, and the governor has some opportunity to propose amendments, so we'll see where that goes. But so in the space of, of two years thus far, you know, we have reduced our direct care population from 570 kids to 320 in the big facilities. We now have 100, more than 100 kids in new treatment units in the facilities. When we started, we didn't have any. We have 72 beds now in the communities as alternatives in different places with more sort of coming online um, as, as we move along. And we have, we've set up the way to create sort of regional systems of care so that every region of the state is going to have sort of the same baseline level of alternatives to confinement as every other region. It's never going to stop Fairfax from even having more above and beyond that, or Charlottesville probably from having more and above that. But at least we'll make sure that the kids we get in our state-operated facilities are kids who really have truly exhausted all meaningful alternatives that ought to have been available to them. So, which is to say that when you're in state government or you're in the right position, you can actually do quite a bit. And, and part of what you want to think about as you think about your career and, and the work you want to do is, is not so much, I mean, part of it is where can I have the most impact? But part of it's also like what role is most meaningful for you? And there's so many different, I think, great ways to make a difference in this work. And whether you want to be a legal aid lawyer or a prosecutor or work on prison conditions or, or be a public defender, or you want to work on this systemic reform stuff. And, and you know, uh, something I'm quite grateful for is, is now, I guess, 20 years or 22 years into my life as a public interest lawyer, I guess I can call it a career at this point. Uh, I, every, every job I've had has contributed to the next and has informed my understanding and hopefully my ability to be more effective with each sort of succeeding position that I had. And, and if someone had said to me, 
when I started that I was going to be the man, you know, I would have said, you're kidding. That's the last thing in the world I would ever want to do. That's not how I see myself. Um, but, but if what my experience thus far is, is instructive of, is to, you know, always keep your mind open uh, for opportunities to make a difference. And, and even if it's not how you see yourself or how you thought your career path would go, um, there are lots of different ways to, to do this work. And I'm sure I had lots of other exciting slides to share with you. Uh, but, but so just real quick before we talk about lawyers, is, I think, because I know this is put on by a group interested in criminal justice reform and, and prison reform, um, part of you know, thinking about your future or thinking about the work you want to do is thinking about the different kinds of issues that are involved in that work. And, and if you use sort of the reduce, reform, replace template, it, it's kind of an easy way to put different kinds of work in different kinds of buckets, right? So the reduce work would be what? Like working on policy around sentencing reform. It would be being a public defender and trying to keep people out. It would be working on issues or litigating issues of procedural fairness so people have access to counsel and the right counsel and counsel who can actually do their job and, and that sort of thing. If you look at the reduced piece of it, that also has to do with sentencing reform. And, and I'm sorry, if you look at the reform part of it, then you get probably more into conditions work. Like what are we doing with people in our system? Or it, it gets into reentry work. People are thinking a lot more about expungement and ban the box and barriers to getting on with life for people who have criminal histories and criminal backgrounds. And then there's sort of the replace piece of this, uh, which is rethinking the whole prison thing, right? And do we need, and people are in the midst of this, they're doing it more on the juvenile side than they are on the adult side, but the adult work is taking place as well. And it's like, does this make sense? Does this model of corrections make sense? Are we getting what we want from it? And you, know, you go to Europe, you go to Scandinavia, they have very different ways of incarcerating people. And I'm not saying that it's better or worse, but there are different ways to think about that. And so there are different sort of categories of issues that might be of interest to you. And, and I'm oversimplifying it quite a bit. You know, then there's also the huge issue that I don't think anyone has figured out, which is the issue of racial justice, you know, which cuts across all these things. And one of the things that I, that I meant to say, and I had a nice graphic illustration of this, is, is, is in our system, you know, this is another issue we're trying to tackle. 24% of the kids in Virginia are African-American. 70% of the kids doing the longest sentences in our facilities are African-American. For every offense category, African-American kids are twice as likely to get committed to the Department of Juvenile Justice, like sent to one of our facilities, than white kids. So that's just our stuff, you know, but that cuts across everything, and that's not getting into how we police, it's not getting into you know, how we represent people. It's not getting into all sorts of issues associated with racial justice. But that is a huge, in addition to everything that I just said, that's a huge set of issues. Um, or that idea of racial justice encompasses a huge set of issues that people 
hopefully, and it seems like there's some momentum there, we'll continue to think about and work on. And, and I think, you know, having lots of smart young people involved in those discussions will be very helpful because I suspect that the systems we have in place right now aren't really adequate to address that issue comprehensively and that we need to think much more expansively about, about the work that we do. But then thinking about lawyers and thinking about those issues, um, and some of this is reflected in my own experience, there's obviously lots of different ways you can jump into the fray. Right? You can be a, a public defender. You can be a prosecutor, again, sort of at the front end of the system. You can do community organizing around local justice reform, things like that. You can do impact work. You know, The Department of Justice under the Obama administration has done some phenomenal conditions work, particularly on kids, and, and come up with very novel uses of, of disparate impact theory to create huge changes, both in the school-to-prison pipeline in some communities and conditions. Um, but my, I had friends who worked for the you know, special litigation unit during the previous administration, and they really weren't allowed to do very much. So you, know, you have to think about who's at the top um, if you think about where am I going to make the most impact. The, but obviously the ACLU, certain legal aid programs, certain prison projects do lots of kind of conditions work. There's all kinds of post-conviction work, right? You know, Deirdre Enright is doing great post-conviction work with the Innocence Project. There's death penalty work. There's all kinds of litigation going on around juvenile sentences right now. There's a lot of interesting work to be done there. There's all kinds of interesting work to be done on the post-conviction side, I mean, the sort of collateral consequences side. You know, what, what are the civil rights of ex-felons and how are people thinking about that? So, and then there's doing policy work. So what we did at Just Children, we did a lot of state-based and local-based policy advocacy and we got laws changed and we, we kept bad laws from getting passed. And so there are lots of ways to be effective there. You know, I, would, I have a bias towards state work over federal work just because the federal work you know, they've been working on the Juvenile Justice you know, Delinquency Prevention Act for about 10 years. And, and one sen- it was all ready to go, and then one senator decided he didn't like it, and so it got stalled out. So that just wouldn't be enough immediate gratification for someone like me. But, but there's work to do on the federal level, too. And there's also work you know, in big counties. People are doing really powerful work that has impact on large groups of people. And then there's agency work. And, and I think... I think in terms of agency work, which I've had the privilege of doing for the last couple of years, if that's what you want to do, I I would really think a lot about what's the direction, who's running, if if impact is kind of your goal. Because it, it changes quite a bit depending on the politics, depending on who's the governor or who's the the local county leader or, or whatever, and you need to think about what you want to do and where you want to fit. But that all being said, there's a lot of great work to do um, in state and federal agencies that, that has that I hope you know will continue to move the needle in these areas. 